The comments and views expressed on The More Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The More Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. My guest today is British publisher for Nexus magazine, Marcus Allen. Now Marcus has presented his analysis of the Apollo moon landings, which he believes may have been faked. Having worked as a photographer in the 1960s, Marcus was able to examine the well-known photographs issued by NASA from a professional viewpoint. He has also researched many other aspects of Apollo, he has given many public presentations on the subject, during which he is always asked by someone to prove him wrong. To date, no one has. He has reluctantly come to the conclusion that it is beyond reasonable doubt that some manipulation of the Apollo records has taken place. Marcus Allen, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you. Well, Marcus, just tell us a bit about yourself to begin with. Well, I'm the UK publisher of Nexus magazine, which is an Australian uh, publication, been in existence for over 20 years now. I've published it in the UK for the last 16, 17 years. And it deals with subjects you're not going to read about too often in the mainstream press or the mainstream media, to do with uh, hidden history, future science, uh, alternative health, the unexplained all the sort of subjects which a lot of people find interesting but have very few sources of information to inform themselves about them. So Nexus is the source of it. Go for it. So how did you get involved with Nexus then? I, I had a, a pretty regular job and uh, enjoyed it. I worked in the motor business, uh, in the motor, uh, motor trade. And uh, one day I got made redundant. You know, these things happen. Early 1990s, it was quite common, and I thought, well... I can sell motor cars, I, maybe I can sell magazines. That was just after I'd uh, found Nexus, a friend had a copy, and I uh, went out to Australia to meet the editor and told him that I'd like to try selling it in Britain. And he said, go for it, see how you get on. So I did, and I got on pretty well. And we're now selling upwards of 12,000 copies an issue. Right, okay. So obviously there is a demand for it, so uh, having gotten into it, I... And uh, I had a, a new career, which was rather fun. Yeah. So the Nexus magazine is available from all good bookstores and magazine stores and WH Smiths in the country? That's right, yeah. It's okay. a, available through main news agents. also available through us here. At, uh, if you go onto nexusmagazine.com, which is the website for, for the magazine, uh, you'll be able to find out where we are in the UK. We're in, based in East Grinstead in Sussex, which is uh, right next to Gatwick Airport. Okay, so um, did the Nexus magazine make you think outside the box, or have you always thought outside the box? Well, personally, I've, I've always been a little bit uh, off-centre, as they say. I've always thought outside the box in far as... I've never fully accepted... Uh, you know, if somebody said, this is what you have to believe because I say so, I've always thought, well, is there another explanation that could be equally valid? Well, let's have a look and find out if there is. And if there is, I think, well... What are the, what's the evidence behind it? Because it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of evidence in anything. You know, people will say, do you believe in UFOs? And I say, it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of evidence. And Nexus can give you quite a lot of evidence. And once you have the evidence, you can then decide for yourself whether something is worth believing or 
can be believed or can be supported by the evidence. And if it can be, then you move on and you're not so mystified by some of the strange things that we see and hear around us. Okay. Now, we're going to talk about the moon landings today, the 1969 moon landings. Um, just tell us a bit about your theory concerning this to begin with. Well, this is the, the Apollo moon landings, the, the, the only moon landings as it happened. Um, I was, I'm old enough to have been around at the time they actually happened in um, July 1969. I remember lying awake. It was uh, 3.30 in the morning UK time that it actually happened. And you're watching the television and these strange little black and white pictures come up. And, and I thought, this is wonderful, an incredible achievement. They've landed on the moon. I got up, looked out the window, and there it was. So I waved, but nobody waved back. And for many years, I thought, okay, I saw it. It's what happened. Believe it. And then, interestingly enough, it was an American who was giving a talk in um, in London, and he actually he mentioned almost in passing it wasn't anything to do with the Apollo moon landings. It was to do with with ancient history and um, some of the strange things that go on in Egypt and South America and in other places. And he happened to mention, of course, um, the moon landings. You know. You don't really believe they happen the way we were shown, do you? And I thought, what is he talking about? Uh, he said, well, just look at the photographs and uh, check them out, and you'll find that uh, there's some pretty strange things going on in those photographs. And I thought, the man's a fool. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm a photographer, yeah. which I was at the time. And I thought, yeah, I'll check out these photographs. I'll find out what's going on. And uh, I looked at them, and at the time, this is, what, 15, 16 years ago, there wasn't the internet as, as it, we know it today. You couldn't just put Apollo photographs in the internet and come up with millions of them or thousands of them as you can now. I had to go out and buy a set. I bought a set of postcards uh, of the Apollo landings and I had to look at them and I thought, mm, uh, yeah, okay, that looks pretty okay to me. And then I had another talk by a guy called David Percy who was, um, at that time, he was writing a book um, called Dark Moon which was all about the Apollo moon landings. And he made some very, very good points, I thought, about how the photographs were, were extremely good. Anyway, the more I looked at it, and I looked at them pretty closely after that, and as the Internet became more accessible as far as examining material like that is concerned, the more I found, the more questions that were, were, were being asked. Well, I was asking the questions, and I wasn't getting any answers. The point about it is that all the photographs taken on the moon were taken with a Hasselblad camera. Now, a Hasselblad camera is a very good camera. Uh, it's available, and you can go to a shop and buy one today. They were used, uh, they were modified slightly, the cameras, because they didn't have a viewfinder, because you couldn't, if you were wearing a spacesuit, look through the viewfinder on any camera. So they took the viewfinder away, presumably to save weight and all the rest of it. And uh, you look at the results of these camera, the results that the cameras produced, and they are brilliant photographs. No getting away from it. They are absolutely cracking images. They're beautifully exposed, very well framed, accurately focused, and I discovered that they had to use what were, in effect, heavy-duty gardening gloves to operate the cameras, and they couldn't use a viewfinder because they didn't have one, and yet they managed to get these amazing images. And I thought, no, this doesn't work. You ask any professional photographer, which I've done, um, if, if I gave you 100 photographs to take and you weren't allowed to use the viewfinder or even know what the exposure was, how many do you think you could get without chopping somebody's head off or getting it out of focus or 
in somehow messing up the picture. Yeah. Most photographers will tell you, I reckon I could do about 50%. 50% would be complete nonsense, and 50% might be halfway decent. I say, well, how would you estimate the exposure? You know, place you've never been to before, you don't know what the light um, intensity is, uh, you know where it's coming from because it's the sun, uh, how would you make sure you got the right exposure? But, but surely they would have practiced for this. Oh, they would certainly have practiced. But also, don't forget, they had a lot of other things to practice as well. It wasn't just the photographs. They had to practice landing the thing as well. And, of course, that's another mystery, because nobody had ever successfully landed one of these contraptions on Earth, let alone the moon. Uh, which, and it had to work first time. And when they come off the moon, they have to fire their rocket, which had never been tested before, and they had to make sure it works perfectly. So, yes, they would have practiced. Of course they would. Um, and, of course, film is being relatively cheap. They could use enormous amounts of yeah, film. Yeah, I mean, but, pra practice makes perfect, doesn't it? Well, up to a point. But uh, don't forget, these cameras are mounted on these guys' chests, uh, which is reasonable because that means their hands are free to do other things as well. So they have to basically move their body to get the shot that they want. Aside from having to focus it manually, there's no automatic focus on it. There's no automatic exposure on it. So, yes, they would have estimated the exposure. But any photographer will tell you that if you don't know what the exposure is, you bracket it. You guess what, he, you, guess yeah. what you think it is. And then you do uh, one shot overexposed, one shot underexposed, or maybe more. That's how you bracket an image. But you have to get the same image. Now, none of that happened on the Apollo pictures because you can now go onto the internet and look at on the Apollo Surface Journal and you can see every photograph taken on every mission in sequence. And just to, just to let our listeners know, um, we've got a number of your pictures that you've sent in as well, uh, Marcus, yep. uh, which if you just go to Marcus Allen under past guests, uh, you'll find the pictures that we're going to refer to in this uh, interview as well. Okay, yep, no, that's fine because... Um, there are some, some quite significant images. Um, there are specifically ones on, on, or mainly ones on Apollo 11, which was the first mission. Um, that was where most of the um, pictures that I'm talking about came from. And specifically, there is one which, I don't know, it's probably uh, as famous as any photograph, that they are the, uh, the man on the moon photograph where you have, in fact, it's alleged to be Buzz Aldrin, who is um, sitting, who is standing facing the camera. And in, the, in his visor, you can see um, the photographer, in this case, Neil Armstrong, who was um, taking, the, taking the picture. And you can also see the other parts of it as well. You can see the, uh, the lander to one side. The point I make about the picture is you can see where the sun is. The sun is over his... Buzz Aldrin's left shoulder is coming from the right-hand side of the picture. But the front of Buzz Aldrin is easily seen. There is no, there's no shadow. It should be dark shadow. Because when you're on the moon, you have the sun as the source of light, which casts very, very dark shadows. There is no reflected light from atmosphere as you get on Earth. Uh, light can be bounced around by the atmospheric particles and dust particles, and, and so you get shadows filled in. But the other point, and the key point, is that the photographic film used, which is in this case was Kodak Ektachrome, does not record a very wide range of exposure on the film, about one stop for those people technically inclined. 
Therefore, you carry a fill-in flash normally to fill in the darkness of the shadow to make it compatible with the highlight of the directly illuminated area. But on Apollo, nothing like this was carried. There was no um, fill-in flash or reflectors carried. Therefore, you have to ask, how was this picture created? Now, my answer would be that it was created here on Earth under controlled studio lighting conditions. It was taken during the training and simulation exercises. There's no secret about them. There were plenty of them done. And, of course, that's what you would do in a training and simulation exercise. You would take lots of pictures and take lots of film because you would then play it back and say, uh, when you're coming down the ladder, Buzz, um, be careful with your left foot because you don't want to miss the rung and fall off, seeing as you're live on television. So you'd practice it. And they tell us that they were taken on the moon. If you ask NASA, well, how was this picture taken? They'll say it was taken on the moon by Neil Armstrong. And you say, well, he's a very, very good photographer. Yes, he is. He's practiced a lot. Of course he practiced a lot. But he had a lot of other things to practice as well. And it's interesting that none of the Apollo astronauts or even any of the other astronauts have sort of taken up photography as even a, a hobby. Um, oh. The only one that I know who has taken up um, image creation is Al Bean, who was uh, on Apollo 12, who is he's actually a very, very good artist. He, he paints a lot of very interesting pictures. So, okay, you mentioned there about, about their, um, you know, it was difficult to take the pictures in, in the conditions that they had. Um, what about the pressurized suits? I mean, would that have made it more difficult as well, with the sort of big pressurized gloves that they had to wear? It would have made it virtually, in my case, uh, in my uh, estimation, virtually impossible. Because, um, all right, this is what you do to test it. You go and, to, go and get a pair of really tough gardening gloves and then try to operate a camera with it. And you'd, you'd laugh and you'd say, well, what a stupid thing to do. Of course you don't operate a camera with gardening gloves because you can't find the shutter button. You can't um, make sure that it's absolutely... You know, don't forget you've got no viewfinder as well. And yes, they have to wear a spacesuit when they're in space because uh, there's no atmosphere on the moon. It's, it's a vacuum. Therefore, you have to take your own atmosphere with you or you, you, you die. And you can't wear half a spacesuit. You've got to wear the gloves and the helmet and the boots and everything. And they had all this encumbrance on them, and yet these photographs were taken. And they are brilliant photographs. No, no, there's no getting away from it. So the spacesuit is a major handicap that they have to overcome. The camera and its limitations are another handicap that they overcome. They had to overcome. The fact that nobody had ever been there before to know what the conditions were and how to operate under those conditions, you could estimate them, were a major handicap. And in space, because there is no atmosphere on the moon as there is on Earth, there is no atmosphere to filter the sunlight or to dissipate the sunlight, when you stand in sunlight, that is immediately at 250 degrees Fahrenheit, over 100 degrees centigrade. As soon as you move into the shadow, in this case of the lunar landers, you see in some of the photographs there, the lunar lander casts a shadow. The temperature within the shadow is minus 100 degrees centigrade, i.e. colder than anywhere here on Earth. And they move from one to the other. There's no gradual decrease of temperature or gradual increase of temperature as there is here on Earth because we have an atmosphere which, which sort of absorbs the cold, absorbs the heat. On the moon, there is none. It's sharp. It's immediate. You move from 100 
plus higher than the boiling point of water to minus 100. So, so how would we get around that problem nowadays? If we, we were to go to the moon? If we were to go to the moon, basically we have to rethink the whole concept of it. We would be using digital equipment now, and our digital equipment does not have the same limitation as photographic equipment, and this is a key difference. Every photograph you look at, taken on the moon, was taken with photographic film, or taken on photographic film, reversal film. They're basically slides, what we call slides. Um, they're not prints. They're not taken on photographic negative, as most people would take uh, film today. If they were using cameras with film, they would take photographic negative. No, these were taken on reversal film, which is a very good film to use. It, it, uh, it gives extraordinary rendition of color. But there's a major drawback in that you cannot alter the exposure during the process. With negative film, you can alter the exposure with, with, the, with the processing. So you either you have to get the exposure absolutely spot on or you ruin the film. Or, as most professionals would do, you take lots and lots of pictures of slightly different exposures to make sure you get one right. Nowadays, uh, if we were going back to the moon, and isn't it strange that America has cancelled the return to the moon, that's the Constellation Project, which incidentally was going to take twice as long to go back in the 21st century as it did in the, in the 20th century to get there originally in the first place, it took eight years. But surely that's just cost. Well, the cost may well be, but you'd think that they've done it once with pretty primitive equipment relative to what we have accessible to us today. They did it in eight years, from Kennedy's announcement, President Kennedy's announcement in May 1961, land a man on the moon before the decade is out, which they did in July 1969. That was eight years, just over eight years, and they succeeded. At the time the announcement was made, by the way, no American had been into space. Yuri Gagarin had been into space, um, and that was, that was the catalyst for the whole thing. Yeah, but surely they only just made it. Um, well, you say only just made it. They made it with Apollo 11 in July 1969. They made it with Apollo 12 in November 1969. So they got two missions land before the decade was out. I think that's, that's pretty good going. And then they had famous Apollo 13 in April 1970, which, of course, didn't make it. So we're told. But that's another story. And then they had 14, 15, 16, and 17, and then President Nixon cancelled it. Um, when they had three more missions planned, Apollo 18, 19, and 20. So they were, you know, it was a pretty decent um, bunch of hardware they had available. Um, they succeeded pretty successfully. Uh, they got several planned over the next uh, two or three years. The last one was Apollo 17 in 1972. And yet, when we say, let's go back to the moon, well, we haven't actually been back in, in over 40 years, we're going to go back, it's going to take twice as long as the first time. That doesn't make sense. That is not the way people work. That is not the way explorers work. It's not the way scientists work. When you've done it once, you want to do it again. Well, do you I think mean, there's benefits for, um, you know, benefits in technology to go in out, into outer space? I mean, uh, for example, medicine, there's been benefits in... Um, well, there's been benefits in all sorts of fields, hasn't there, with, with the space exploration? Indeed, there's been enormous spin-offs. Um, I mean, people did complain about the cost of the Apollo program. I'm told it cost $25 billion in um, 1970 prices, which is equivalent of about $200 billion today. That's a lot of money. But don't forget, every single cent of that was spent here on Earth. 
You say, well, why do you spend so much money in space? You don't spend any money in space. You spend it employing engineers and scientists and technicians here on Earth. That's what you spend the money on. And that keeps them employed. And I'm all in favor of that because it stops them building bigger and better bombs to hit people with. So it's a, it's a, it's a space is a peaceful process. And yes, there are very, very good spin-offs that come from it. Teflon wasn't one of them, by the way, and Velcro, I think Velcro was possibly one. But there are many good ideas that, that develop from it. Um, I mean, a parallel example would be the famous flight of Charles Lindbergh across the Atlantic. Um, he was the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic. Now, people didn't turn around at that point and say, oh, well, Charles Lindbergh's done it. There's no point in anybody else giving it a go. Um, what's what's that's such boring flying across the Atlantic? Let's all, let's all sit around here on Earth and drive somewhere. No, they said, oh, look, he's done it. Now let's see if we can do it. And, hey, one person can do it. Can two people do it? And can 200 do it? And can 500 do it? And yes, we now have super jumbos that fly across the Atlantic and you think you're sitting in your sitting room. That's development, and that was only, that's in 80 years altogether, 1920s and 2010. It just doesn't make sense that we haven't been back to the moon. It really doesn't. Um, it's almost as if the whole thing was a total fabrication in the first place, and they don't dare try and do it again because they know how difficult it is, because there is one major problem with space travel. And that is? Radiation. Radiation is the showstopper of space. And that has been acknowledged by NASA. They, they haven't been quiet about it. Um, several occasions when a new director of NASA has come in, they've made announcements about their proposed plans for their tenure of office. And one of them was that we intend to investigate the dangers of radiation in space as it will prohibit man traveling beyond Earth. Now, we don't experience radiation here on the surface of planet Earth because we have something called the Van Allen radiation belts, which are about 250, 500 miles above the Earth's surface. Uh, they're basically the, electric, the magnetic field of the Earth protects us. Van Allen belts were so-called because they were discovered by Professor James Van Allen um, in 1958. He'd theorized that they existed, but it was only the launch of the Explorer 1 uh, satellite, or the Explorer 1 spacecraft, which was the first successful launch of an, uh, of an American rocket, into space that uh, he carried a Geiger counter basically on the top of the rocket to try and measure the radiation. That's what Geiger counters do. It measures radiation. And when he got back, uh, they were taking the readings, and the thing just stopped. What they discovered was that they had totally underestimated the this power of the radiation, the strength of the radiation, and the Geiger counter was overwhelmed. Hence, it stopped. So on Explorer 3, they sent an even more powerful Geiger counter up, and that's when they discovered that, yes, these things are up there, and yes, they are radioactive, in effect. Okay, so what would that do to a, uh, an astronaut traveling through it and coming well, back? Well, this is an interesting point, actually, because... If you ask somebody who believes that the Apollo missions happened the way we've been told that they happened, they will say, well, of course, yes, there is radiation in space and, and the Van Allen belts are quite dangerous, but they were going so fast that they traveled right through them in about two hours, which is true. 25,000 miles an hour, which is escape velocity from, from Earth's gravitational field, 
Van Allen belts are about 20 to 30,000 miles um, across by the time you get through them all. Um, it would take you about that. And yes, you will be exposed to radiation for that length of time, which is rather like saying it's okay to sit under um, an X-ray machine uh, for about two and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. You won't come to any harm. Um, it's just like sitting out in the sun. You know, you might get a bit of sunburn, but don't worry about it. It won't cause you any problems. That's the equivalent of saying that. It's very dangerous out there. Very dangerous. Radiation, because uh, it's all produced by the sun, and radiation is just another wavelength of light. We have visible light, which we can see. Then you have X-rays and gamma rays and infrared and ultraviolet and all the other bits you can't see. If you go and sit in gamma radiation, you're going to die because gamma radiation is very, very high frequency. If you go out into space where this radiation is just sort of flying around all, all over the place and the moon has no protection from it, so you'll be exposed to the dangers of radiation the minute you stand out, the minute you step out of your craft or even before you get there. Now, the point is you can shield from radiation. You can protect equipment from radiation, but you're very, very difficult to protect humans from radiation. What it does is to actually affect the cells in your body. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, we've heard about the dangers of, of, uh, of uh, the nuclear power plants at um, Chernobyl and Fukushima. And that's radiation. That's just but, like the stuff you get out in space. But surely, Marcus, the, um, you know, the, the capsules would have been uh, insulated from the radiation. They would have had radiation protection on them. Well, that's what you would expect, wouldn't you? Because if they knew about the radiation, you would expect they would protect the astronauts, even though they're all military men. No, the, the Apollo craft had no protection from radiation whatsoever, unless you consider a thin sheet of aluminium which is all that the spacecraft were made from, thin sheets of aluminium, protects you from radiation, um, then you would say they have protection. But, in fact, aluminium does not protect you from well, radiation. Le lead and water do. Okay, so how thick would the lead have to be to, to sort of protect them? Four feet. Four feet. So would the rockets have been able to, um, you know, get them up uh, beyond the uh, atmosphere to, with that no. kind of weight? No, four foot of lead, two foot of lead, one foot of lead... A three inches of lead would be so heavy that no rocket could take off with that. It would be a joke. Yes, you can carry a, a certain amount of water, and water does protect against radiation, but they didn't carry the water in the form that it would protect from. It would protect against the radiation. But in effect, they carried no protection against radiation in the spacecraft on the way to the moon, and especially in the spacesuits as they walked around on the surface of the moon. There but, was no protection. Okay, but why then didn't anybody else come forward to say, hang on a minute, guys, there's you know, not enough radiation shielding on these, on these shuttles? Well, it's interesting that a lot of people actually have made that point. Um, I would say that they haven't made it strongly enough because the one thing that you cannot protect from the radiation is photographic film. That... I mean, that's what, it, that's what it's designed to do. It reacts to the, the electromagnetic spectrum, i.e. visible light, part of which is radiation. And you can't protect a camera from radiation if you're going to take photographs in the place where it exists because it all goes through the lens. Now, if you 
remember when you bought a film a few years back, it always had an expiry date on it. And you think, well, that's a bit odd. Why do you need an expiry date on a photographic film? It's not going to rot. No, it's not going to rot like a piece of meat would. But if you leave a photograph, a, a roll of photographic film in your front room or anywhere for long enough, it will actually be affected by radiation. It will get fogged. It will, it will be slightly misty when you... And you can use it. There's no, no problem with that. But it won't be as good a piece of film as if you'd used it when you were relatively young. So all photographic film did have an expiry date. And I, I do remember having finding a film years and years ago that I had for about, I think it was about 15 years. And I used it just to see what it was like. And yes, it was, it was slightly damaged. Now, none of the films that we see back come back from allegedly taken on the lunar surface have any form of radiation damage on them at all. None whatsoever. Which is pretty, pretty strange. Now, nowadays, when you uh, see film taken from space, it's taken digitally. Now, a digital camera, as I've said, works differently. It doesn't, it's not affected by radiation in the same way. It can be. Um, electronic equipment can be affected by radiation. But, uh, but how far are they going up? Are they going past the Van Allen belt, or are they, yeah. are they just be staying below that when no, they go up nowadays? They are, they are going well. Uh, whenever, when, when they went to the moon, they go well past. The Van Allen belts are about three, four, five hundred miles up. There's two of them, two major belts, the inner and outer belt. The inner belt is the, is the lower one, which is about 500 miles up, and the outer belt goes to about 20,000 miles. Uh, there's a third belt as well, but we're not going, that was created artificially by mistake, by exploding a nuclear bomb 200 miles above the Pacific in 1961. Thanks, guys. What a wonderful thing to do. So there are three belts. Um, now, the space station and the space shuttle and everything in low Earth orbit travels below the Van Allen radiation belt, so they're not affected in the same way. They are protected to a large extent from any dangers of radiation. It's only when you go beyond the Van Allen radiation belts that you're exposed to the dangers of the radiation of deep space. And the only people who have ever, the only people who have ever traveled beyond the Van Allen radiation belts, we're told, are the Apollo astronauts, 25 of them. Twelve who walked on the lunar surface and the others who uh, went and didn't land or traveled in the command module and didn't land either. Only 12 have walked on the lunar surface. So No Russians have been beyond the Van Allen radiation belts because no. they knew the danger. No, they said so. They, they, they made a public statement about it. When asked when they were going to land on the moon, the Russians said, when we can ensure the protection of our cosmonauts from the dangers of radiation in space. So in your opinion then, Marcus, would you say then that these, the Apollo missions would have took, took off and... Um, they would have remained on low Earth orbit and then, and then just, uh, you know, crashed back down in, into the sea. So they, are you saying they actually, man never went to the moon, in your opinion? I don't see the evidence for it. I see much stronger evidence to say that they didn't go. No, I don't know for certain if they went or not. All I'm saying is I don't see the evidence. If I want to believe they went there, that's another story altogether. You know, I believe in Father Christmas, too. But I want to see the evidence for the moon landings. But and the only evidence presented is what NASA tells us uh, recorded in the photographs. But over 400,000 people worked on the NASA projects, um, or on the Apollo project, should I say. 
So why have they never had their doubts? Well, you know, I mean, out of these 400,000 people, I mean, surely, um, you know, there would have been more than there are now that would have come forward. I mean, how can you, how do you answer that? Well, I would agree that there are at least 400,000 people were working directly or indirectly on the Apollo project at the time. This is the mid-1960s. They were working in different companies in different states right across America, from Washington State to uh, Florida, from Texas up to Virginia. Yes, they were, there were 400,000 people, but they were only doing the job they were employed to do. They were building the best rockets they could, the best spacesuits, the best rovers, the best of everything they were asked to do. They didn't have access to the, to the whole picture. They were contributing what they thought was the best that they could do, and they were doing the, doing the very best. But if you built the rocket, you wouldn't necessarily know what was on, going on in the command, um, in, in, in the uh, control center down in Houston in Texas. You wouldn't necessarily know about that. You would watch it on television because you wanted it to happen. You believe what you watch on television because that was the only way that most people actually had access to any of this. We can now look at some of the results of the photographs and the films read the books, listen to the interviews, but beyond that, no, 400,000 people were doing the very best job they could. They weren't party to any of this. There would have been a decision made at some point that if we're going to do this thing, this Apollo thing live on television, which was the proposal, and that's what they were, that's what they ultimately did, shown live on television, somebody would have said, well, we can't have an astronaut dying on the moon now, can we? It's not going to be good for publicity. What's interesting is that recently uncovered was the speech that um, President Nixon was going to make if an astronaut did die on the moon. And what was that? And brave men, frontiers of science, um, will be remembered forever, etc., etc., normal stuff. Um, it's strange it's taken nearly 40 years for that, <laughs> for that speech to be made public which indicates that they were supposed to have gone there, doesn't it? Because why would Nixon have a speech that um, spoke of a mission that went wrong um, if they didn't go there in the first place? Well, what about the idea, then, I'll put it to you, that they did go there, but the footage that we saw was reenactments, but they did actually make it to the moon, but then why would they have given us false footage? That's, that's a, a story which I... I or an aspect of it which I find quite interesting. Suppose, yes, supposing that everything we've been told about the Apollo moon landings more or less happened the way we've been told. And they got there, they got out, they took the photographs, they got back, they landed, um, big heroes, etc., etc. When they developed the film, the pictures were all unusable partly because of the radiation damage, partly because they were under such enormous pressure, which they were, if they were on the lunar surface, they were under enormous pressure, like, are we going to be able to get back again? That maybe the photographs are unusable. Now, if that was the case, they could then have used those training and simulation exercise pictures we talked about earlier. On the grounds that, well, nobody else has been to the moon, who'll know the difference? And if we go along with that and say, well, that's what happened, okay, I don't have a problem with that as an explanation if that's what NASA will tell us happened. But they don't. NASA say, no, 
that every photograph that we have seen was taken on the lunar surface by the named astronauts. That is their story, and they've been sticking to it. Now, if you believe that NASA stands for never a straight answer, um, then you have to investigate a little bit further. Because too many things just don't add up about this whole Apollo mission business. Because they're telling us things which can be proven to be incorrect. What I meant in regards to the moon as well, about, about, uh, well, in regards to us not seeing the actual footage and seeing footage that was filmed previous or prior to um, uh, the moon landings themselves, you know, there has been talk of um, sort of, you know, structures on the moon um, and things on the moon which shouldn't be there. Could we have been hidden from a, a, a sort of a truth, perhaps? That is a very interesting aspect of it. That's a quite distinct possibility. There are certainly photographs which, which I have seen which have which appear to have been uh, manipulated, appear to have things removed from them. There are also many other stories, like Armstrong is supposed to have said when he was on the lunar surface. This is assuming he was there, of course. Oh, look, they're looking at us. They're huge. They are, and all that, indicating that there was somebody watching them when they were landing. It's a possibility, um, but I've seen no evidence, independent evidence, to support it. Which is, that, that is what's so interesting about this whole area. A lot of the things one hears, like Armstrong making comments about um, other things on the moon, photographs showing other structures on the moon which couldn't be natural, they had to be artificial, i.e. maybe the people who built them aren't even there anymore, but they were there once. All these things indicate that somebody got to the moon, which supports the original story. It's called disinformation. You put information out there which supports your original contention, but in effect can't be proven one way or the other. All I'm asking for is irrefutable evidence that these things exist. It would be nice to, f- to feel that they did, yeah. because I think, uh, I mean, my particular theory, <laughs> yeah, if you want to get a nice theory on this, is that, well, the moon keeps one face towards Earth at all times, which is just the way it is. It's called tidal drag. Um it's a certain distance away from us. It uh, keeps one face towards us. Therefore, one face is always hidden from us. Well, that's where the UFOs go in and out, isn't it? Because we can't see them doing it. If the moon is hollow, it's an artificial construct. Therefore, it is um, the base. If, you know, if we see UFOs on Earth, where do, where do they come from? Could it be that they come from the moon? I don't know. But surely, it's a good story. It's a good it's story of man landing on the moon. It's an interesting story, Marcus. But um, surely, you know, we've got other countries now, India, China, who are making, well, they, there's talk of them sort of preparing to send uh, more unmanned probes up to the moon and eventually, you know, want to send uh, man up there as well. Um, uh, could the next astronauts to the moon be India and, 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 and Chinese uh, astronauts? And if that's the case, how are they going to get past the problem of the, uh, the Van Allen belt? Good point. Very good point. I, I would say that the, uh, the next people to attempt a, a, a landing on the moon, whether it's manned or it's, pr- it's probably going to be unmanned to start with, will be the Chinese. Landing an unmanned craft on the moon isn't actually much of a problem. Um, you can see where you're going before you even set off, and you've just got to make sure you get there. 
landing there is it's a matter of uh, doing the calculations for gravity and slowing all the rest of it. Landing on the moon isn't a problem. Landing man on the moon, however, is a completely different story, as we mentioned, to do with radiation, to do with temperature, to do with protecting, because you want to get him back again. And getting man back from the moon is actually even harder than getting him there in the first place. I don't, I don't really have a problem with getting to the moon. Uh, the Chinese can probably do it. The Indians could probably do it. The Japanese have done it. They've sent a satellite up about three or four years ago. Um, they photographed the lunar surface yet again, and it's been photographed almost as much as Buckingham Palace. As everybody sends satellites up there to photograph it and all the rest of it. There's, there's an American satellite up there at the moment called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is going to be photographing the lunar surface in detail, but interestingly enough, not in enough detail to be able to see any of the landers supposedly on the lunar surface. That's interesting, because I was going to say to you, can we pick it up with our telescopes on planet Earth? Can astronomers pick up the, uh, the remnants of the Apollo mission up there? No, no they can't. There's, there's no telescope, including the Hubble telescope, which, is, which has enough resolution to be able to identify an object basically the size of a car a quarter of a million miles away. Uh, if, if you do the calculation, uh, it, they... There's no telescope powerful enough, including the very large telescope in Chile, which I was told five years ago was being um, finally constructed, and it, as part of its testing procedure, they would have a look at the moon and identify the landers on it. That's what I was told um, during a newspaper interview when I was asked about it, and I said, I'd love to see the photographs of the landers on the moon. It'd be great, really. Five years ago, I'm still waiting to see them. Haven't produced them yet. Now, at this point, somebody might go to the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter website and dig up the pictures that they've allegedly taken of the landers showing them there. And the only way you can tell the landers are on the lunar surface is because NASA, who operate the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, have put a bloody great arrow saying lunar lander. And all you see is a little white dot and a black shadow. It's about two pixels across, which is completely inconsequential. It doesn't prove anything other than that I've heard of Photoshop, too. <laughs> so, you know, that, it's extraordinary because in 1966, when NASA, God bless them, were trying to find somewhere to land man on the moon, they sent something up called the, the Lunar Orbiter, which is an unmanned craft that was to photograph the lunar surface. And we heard this before. That's how long they've been photographing the lunar surface. And they had cameras on that craft which were photographing moon rocks less than three foot across. It was the same equipment that was used in spy satellites later on, which could read your newspaper headline from space. Remember that famous expression? I do. Um, so they were very, very powerful and very accurate cameras. And on the moon, you don't have to orbit so high because it's smaller. And so you can get closer to the object. So they were using equipment 40 years ago, which could do what they can't do today. It's like we go backwards in, in technology. Now, if being cynical and being fairly um, hardened to the blandishments of PR people in places like NASA, I would say that they are going backwards in, with technology because they don't dare go forward. Because if they did and produced photographs of the lunar landers, we would see they never got there because they can't produce them.
because they're not there. They're not on the lunar surface. They never left Earth. Or if they left Earth, they only went into low Earth orbit. Would you be surprised, though, if they were there? And, you know, would you... Are you able to say that you might be wrong? Of course I might be wrong. And secretly, I hope I am wrong. Because man deserves to to get answers to to this. I mean, man's traditional trajectory in anything is to go forward, whether he's sailing across the Atlantic to discover America, uh, as Columbus did in 1492, and 30 years later the Spanish were in control of the place, or whether it's Christopher, uh, uh, Captain Cook, who uh, discovers Australia in 1770, and within 30 years Britain shipped its prison population out to Australia on the First Fleet in 1785. Yes, it always moves forward, except for space travel, where they move backwards. They can photograph things in considerable detail before they land, and then they can't photograph them again. Now, if I'm wrong on this, I will apologize publicly, but I don't think I am. Because the longer we go, and I mentioned the Constellation Project, which was um, announced by uh, President uh, Bush in 2004, the return to the moon in 2020, President Obama last year cancelled it. I don't know why, it really doesn't matter. Because there's nobody in America trying to get to the moon again. And they're not even able to photograph what they put there 40 years ago. It, it, well, this is we, what doesn't make sense. Would we need to go to the moon to get to Mars? Not necessarily. Um, because the moon has gravity, so if you're going to land on the moon and then go to Mars, you've still got to take off from the moon again. It might be a little bit easier, but you've still got to ship all the uh, all the fuel up there to get there. Because um, don't forget, getting out of Earth orbit is the hard part. Earth orbit, uh, you've got to accelerate your spacecraft up to 25,000 miles an hour to leave the gravitational attraction or gra- gravitational pull of Earth. And Earth's gravity, the pull of Earth's gravity, goes out quite a long way until you get within the orbit of Mars or wherever you happen to be going, in which case you are attracted to that. You've got to take an awful lot of fuel with you. So going to the moon really isn't a major advantage, unless you can produce the fuel on the moon. But if you're going to do that, you've got to live there. You've got to have man living there. And how does man live on the moon if he's going to be bombarded by radiation. Well, that's what I was going to say to you. How do they get to Mars if they've got to get through the Van Allen belt again? Well, I mean, it's um, well, the same it's, problem. Not, <laughs> it's not just getting through the Van Allen belt. That's, that would be the simple part. Going to Mars? No, no, forget it. Man's never going to go to Mars. He's just, unless he comes up with a brilliantly new and unthought-of way to protect himself from nine months of radiation exposure on the way there. Yet they are I, practicing simulations of uh, long, deep sort of deep space uh, hibernation, aren't they? As well, you know, living in solitary confinement. They're, they're doing, oh yeah. But yeah. What, 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 why are they bothering with the experiments like that if they're not, not planning to go back? Well, you can you can do all that. It keeps people occupied. It makes people think that it could happen. But then you come up against this continual problem of well, how do you get over the radiation damage? And until somebody comes up with an answer to that. Right. And if there, if there are any scientists out there who say that I'm talking nonsense about radiation, I'd love to hear about it. Because, to me, that is the one thing that has not been addressed or overcome. 
And if you're saying there isn't radiation in space, then either all the people who've been discussing it for the last two or three hundred years, ever since space was first looked at, are wrong, I don't think so. Okay. Again, I just want to come back to the uh, the first Apollo mission. And um, how have these astronauts been able to keep this secret for such a long time? I mean, they did have a very um, varied sort of past. I mean, you know, they they all suffered their sort of depressions in a sense, didn't they, in, in, you know, individually? Yes, they, they were. It, it's, um, I do feel actually quite sorry for the astronauts. Um, well, for a start, they were all military, every single one of them. Armstrong was always described as, as a civilian. He wasn't a civilian. He was a test pilot. You can't be a test pilot if you're a civilian, especially if you fought in the Korean War, which he did. He may have retired from the military, but you, you don't retire from your oath of office. He was a, a, he was a brilliant test pilot, was Neil Armstrong. All the others, except for um, Schmidt at the end, who was a geologist, they were all military test pilots. Schmidt, in fact, was military as well insofar as they had to obey orders. And when I say military, I mean they would have taken an oath of office, they would have acknowledged their commander-in-chief, and when a, a military man is given an order it's to jump, his only question would be, how high, sir? Their commander-in-chief was the president, the president said jump, he went and go to the moon, and that's where they would go. They wouldn't question it, they would do it. They would train for it, obviously. They trained under quite adverse conditions. And they did a very, very good job. None of them are going to break ranks. None of them, not one, will let the other, in fact, three of them already died. Three of the uh, ones who walked on the lunar surface have died. They will not break ranks. They will maintain their oath of office, possibly until the last of them has passed on. So nobody is going to say, oh, okay, yeah, we didn't actually go. No, it was all a bit of a sham, but we had to show the Russians who was boss, which is basically what it was all about. So I don't see that there is going to be a problem with that. Nobody's going to break. A lot of people have questioned it, yeah. questioned the Apollo record. A lot of people actually don't necessarily believe what they were told is the truth. You know, that's the same with many things. You know, you can you can take it to, to lots and lots of different areas of uh, of science and, and and things like that, where people don't always believe what sure. they're told. Sure. I mean, have you um, obviously taken this up with NASA? Have you um, sort of written to NASA and have they communicated with you? Yeah, yeah, I've I've written to NASA. It was it was a uh, it was on quite a straightforward uh, point. It was along the lines of. Well, these spacesuits you've built, they were built by a company called Hamilton Standard in America. Ironically, the, the people who physically made it were the people who made Playtex bras, but um, that's another story. <laughs> they had the expertise to sew lots and lots of pieces of cloth together. Yes. Anyway, I wrote to NASA and said, Look, these spacesuits you've made, you, you made um, could they, same spacesuits which have obviously protected the astronauts from the dangers of radiation in space, could those same spacesuits be used for technicians to go into Chernobyl and Three Mile Island to clear up the mess? Because um, that's all radiation is, is nuclear radiation, the same as space radiation. Mm. And now, of course, Fukushima, but uh, I didn't get a reply. I heard um, that the question had been asked by several different people, because it's, it's a logical question to ask. 
if the radiation in space is as severe as it, it would appear to be from the scientific reports of the levels of radiation, which can knock satellites out of the sky, it's powerful enough to, on occasions, to knock electricity supply out, which it did in um, North America a few years ago. Uh, the amount of radiation is so great it shorts out the um, main supplies. And, uh, and NASA, unfortunately, didn't give me the courtesy of a response. No. So there was no response. And, uh, there was no response. No. You know, has, has anyone, in your opinion, been sort of killed for exposing this truth that you're sort of coming out with re in regards to, to the, the moon hoaxing? It's possible, but I don't know. Um, there are people who have died as a result, uh, not as a result of the space program, in the space program. And let's face it, going any form of, of travel into that sort of area is dangerous. Three astronauts were killed when uh, their Apollo 1 capsule caught fire, um, which seems a, a tragic thing given that they were operating the capsule with pure oxygen under pressure, where any schoolboy could tell you it was liable to catch fire if there's a spark anywhere near it. Yeah. Um, there have been astronauts in training who were killed during their um, flying aircraft. Um, but nobody that's, you know, I don't think one could say that has a direct connection. No. Who were going to sort of blow the whistle. Um, you could say, well, why didn't the Russians blow the whistle if it was so obvious? And why didn't they? because the Americans knew enough about the Russian program to keep them quiet. Now, Yuri Gagarin, I've already mentioned, as being the, uh, the first person to orbit the, the Earth. When he landed, he didn't land in his capsule. Now, for various administrative and, and bureaucratic reasons, if you're going to claim an aeronautical first, which is what Yuri Gagarin has claimed as being the first man to orbit the planet, you have to land in your craft as well as take off in it. He took off in it, he orbited the Earth once and came back down again. But at some point he jumped out and parachuted the last bit. You're not allowed to do that. Now the Americans knew he'd done that because they were listening in. And Yuri Gagarin wasn't the first cosmonaut. He wasn't even the second or the third. He was the tenth Russian cosmonaut. The previous nine, or pre eight of them had died when their craft didn't re-enter properly or went off into space or came down too fast and burnt up. So there's dead Russian astronauts floating in space. Yep, there are. And, and what you're, the reason you're mentioning this, I suppose, is, is uh, if they can cover that up, then it's quite possible that other things could be covered up. Exactly, and um, it was the point about uh, why didn't the Russians blow the whistle on the Americans? My answer is that the Americans had enough um, information about the Russians to keep them quiet, aside from the fact that the Americans, who are very generous people, had provided 25 million tons of wheat to Russia in the uh, late 60s and early 70s because their wheat harvest had failed and they were facing severe starvation. 25 million tons a week goes an awful long way, and they did it for two years. I don't say it came with a hidden price, but uh, pressure can be applied. Of course it can. And in the mid-1970s, of course, the Russians and the Americans were cooperating in space. So there was never a rivalry, there was never a race. There was a political uh, construct to take people's mind off the horrors of the Vietnam War. Right, OK. So, so to sum this up, then, you would say 
the main themes which would have stopped mankind going to the moon would have been the the Russians, which you just touched on there, the rockets, and... And the rocks. The rocks, yeah. Now, just tell us about the rocks, because that's what uh, I wanted to come to. The rocks, the famous moon rocks. The moon rocks, because if we, if we went to the moon, then obviously we, we, you know, we got back moon lots, rocks. Yeah, we brought back lots of rocks, 340 kilos of them. A huge great pile. I mean, it's, it's a lot of rocks, 340 kilos. And how many people have seen a moon rock? Well, most people, I think, have seen moon rocks. You go along to the Science Museum here in London, you can see a piece of moon rock. You know it's a piece of moon rock because it's in a glass case and it says moon rock on it. Well, of course you believe it. It's in the Science Museum. They wouldn't get it wrong, would they? Any more than the Rijksmuseum in, in Amsterdam would get it wrong when they had a piece of moon rock presented to their Prime Minister by the Apollo 11 astronauts, Armstrong, Aldrin and Collins, when they did their world tour. After their successful mission to the moon, they presented many people with pieces of moon rock, and it was a very valuable piece of moon rock. And then the Rijksmuseum was being renovated about a couple of years ago, and the moon rock had to be moved, so somebody decided to have a closer look at it, just out of curiosity, you understand, and found it was a piece of petrified wood. Well, I don't remember being told about forests on the moon, you see, and... Um, Petrified wood, mineralized wood, fossilized wood, whatever, is not something which we were told occurred on the moon. None, none of the other scientists who've examined moon rock have found it to be mineralized or fossilized wood. So where did this bit of strange thing come from? Did somebody swap it in the middle of the night? Has it been sold on eBay? I don't know. But NASA were asked about this, and, and, and they basically had no answer. Now, a lot of scientists have examined moon rock. Now, what is it they've examined? Most people would say if they've examined a piece of moon rock, it's like a sort of half brick, a chunk, a, a little stone type thing. That's what they've examined. That's what people think they've examined. No, it's not. Yeah. What they've examined is a piece of dust, moon or ground-up dust. And it wouldn't be identifiable as a piece of rock. It's, it's rather like half a shibboleth cube. It's just ground-up dust. And yes, you can examine that. And quite often you'll find that um, NASA, who supplied it, would supply it in a box marked moon rock. Well, it's, you're not going to go very far in identifying something as not being moon rock if you want to get paid for doing it, which is what, of course, NASA were doing. They were paying the scientists to examine this moon rock. Now, there is also a company in America. If you want um, some simulated moon rock, you can order it by the kilo. There's a company in America who makes it. If you want Mars rocks, you can get those as well. If you want moon rock, you get those. You tell them what you want, and they'll come up with it. So this moon rock nonsense is... It's a, it's a bit of a red herring. Okay, okay. Well, look, we're, get, we're getting to the top of the hour here, so we're almost out of time, Marcus. But um, okay. what do you want your legacy to be in regards to your study uh, over all these years? I would like it to be th said that he thought there was a problem and he never gave up until he had the answer, one way or the other, which I think would be fair. Um, a lot of people tend to give up if they don't get an immediate answer. I'm one of those strange people who just persist and carry on and keep asking the question. What I do find interesting is that the longer this thing has gone on for, I mean, I first publicly spoke about this subject 
probably 12 years ago, where a lot of people would just poo-poo it. Ah, oh, ridiculous, how can you say that? I mean, nonsense. What's happened over the, over the last 12 or so years is that a lot more people are now able to access the information I'm talking about. When I said, I mentioned originally, I had to buy a set of postcards to see pictures from Apollo. Now you can go on to the NASA website, nasa.gov, and you can see every photograph taken on every mission, and there's 32,000 of them. Well, I don't claim to have looked in detail at 32,000 photographs. I have looked in detail at several hundred, if not a few thousand photographs. And the more I look, and the more other people look, they are not able to refute a lot of the things I say, which I'm pleased about. So if my legacy is that I brought to the attention of, of enough people a problem which was eventually identified, because this actually will be uh, determined one way or the other, this is not an open-ended um, question, such as the, the Kennedy assassination. The American government are never going to front up to that one. But no. somebody will go back to the moon one day. Somebody whether it's in 50 years, 100 years, or even 500 years. It doesn't matter. Somebody will go back to the moon one day, and they'll say, you remember back in that 19th century, 20th century, they had something called Apollo, where they were supposed to have landed man on the moon. Let's go and see where they landed. Come on, guys. There's got to be something there still. It hasn't rained here for a long time. And they'll go and say, well, are you supposed to have landed, what is it, 23 degrees east, naught degrees, it's on the moon, lunar equator, 23 degrees east, so it's about an eighth of the way round. Oh, look, that's a strange-looking thing. I wonder what that is. They might say, or they say, well, where is it, this thing they're supposed to have landed in? There must be some evidence of it. Now, that will be the definitive answer. Yeah. And until that happens, I will continue to examine the photograph, because there may well be something on the moon. There may well be a lunar lander on the moon. Maybe they did land. You see, I don't have the evidence one way or the other. They did or they didn't. All I'm saying is the evidence presented by NASA to support their contention that they landed are the photographs of oh. the film, incidentally, obviously. And one of the greatest achievements of mankind, obviously. Yeah, it was voted the top moment of the 20th century, the landing on the, uh, landing on the moon. And, Marcus, how can people find out more information about yourself? Um, I don't have a great deal published. Um, you've probably got as much information about me as, uh, um, as anywhere. Okay, I, well, we'll um, redirect people to your section of our website where um, there'll be yep. information about yourself and no, uh, links to your magazines. People can email me, um, and if they want to discuss this, I, I'm very happy to do it. But, you know, my, my personal experiences are only relevant in this subject so far as um, I, do, I do have a photographic background. And I do have a tenacity which uh, hopefully will one day come up with a decent answer. Excellent. And I publish Nexus, which deals with this sort of subject all the time. Indeed. So <laughs> it's Indeed. my day job, you might say. Yeah. Okay, then, Marcus Wild, well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Kevin. I'm delighted to be able to do so. To find out more information on Marcus Allen, just go to my website, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Marcus Allen under past guests. Now, don't forget you can follow us on Facebook. Just type in themoreshow.co.uk and uh, you'll be able to find out all the latest information on upcoming shows. And don't forget we have a TV show coming out on the 10th of June on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403 starting at 6pm. 
So until next time, be safe. The comments and views expressed on The More Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The More Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. <laughs>